Um, man, what a treat it is to be back here at Cox Mill. Last time I was here preaching on Cox Mill Road was when we first planted Renaissance Bible Church, which is now Christ Point, and we were across the street at the elementary school. And it's the only time in my life I have preached or seen James preach with puppets behind them and stuffed animals. It was the most oddest and weirdest experience. So being back in that library gave me the, uh, I don't know, I was a little nervous when I was there because it reminded me of that. It was so small um, back then, but it's good to see some folks that helped, helped this get this church underway. And it's great to see some old um, faces, not old like as an age, but just good friends that um, we love a lot. I was reminded of um, John when he wrote to his church plants in his little epistles towards right before Revelation. He said, <clears throat> excuse me, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. In two of his letters, he said, I would rather not use paper and ink, which I just love that line. I would rather not write to you. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk to you face to face so that his joy, so that his joy may be complete. I don't know if John ever got back to those churches in Asia Minor, but it is a joy, and I can speak for Jen, it is a privilege that we get to see you face to face. Uh, you guys mean so much to us. Uh, we love your pastor, we love Melissa, we love the kids, they mean a lot, and I believe that God will continue to use this church to truly point people to himself. Remember when Jan James was over the village, I don't know, you still call it the village? No, got rid of that name too. Um, just being written out of the, no, but back when James was over the, the children's ministry, James was our ch first children's pastor, uh, I remember he created the village and got us going, and his big phrase there was making a big deal about God. And James has always been someone that I have uh, been motivated by because he is constantly pointing people to Christ and making a big deal about God. He is a short man making a big deal about God. Um, you know, when our, our daughter Brantley, who is now 20, when she was uh, really young, I remember I would come home from work and I would run into the house and I would give my wife, Jen, a big hug and Brantley would come with her two little pincer arms and she would come in between us and she would shout out, don't forget about me, don't forget about me. I don't know if your kids ever did that uh, when they were little, but it was hard to forget about her because she's, she's saying that over and over. And there's something in the heart of every child to not be forgotten by their parents. Even when they get to be teenagers, there is this desire uh, and longing. Even as you get older, I think all of us that are in here that, that have had kids that still maybe even lost our dad or our mom, there's a desire to be noticed and to not be forgotten uh, by our parents. Now, we might want to forget our teenagers at a few times, but I think all of us want to be loved by our parents. That's embedded into the heart of every child. Um, this is why my buddy, Bob Maddox, who I love, he's, a, he's another Weekend Remember speaker, and he would often tell the story that he made a commitment that whenever his kids would come home, it didn't matter how old they were, it didn't matter if they were in college, out of college, he would make it a point to stop whatever he was doing, run to them, give them a big bear hug, and remind them how much he loved them. He would interrupt their routine, whatever they were doing, he would invade their space, and he would remind them that he sees them, that he loves them that they are not forgotten. And I remember like, like his daughter would come home from college and he would give her, he would run outside right when she pulled up into the driveway and she would, he would run outside and he would give her this big bear hug and her friend would be standing there like coming out of the car just like watching this thing happen. And he would just say, he would just, just give blessings upon her, say how much he loves her and she was going, dad, come on, because she'd been doing it, this happened to her for her whole life. 
And she's like, come on, Dad, I know, I know. You can. And she's just pushing away, but what do you think she's doing inside? No, I, I want it. And what do you think the friend's doing? If her friend has never had somebody that has done that, a father like that, she's probably thinking to herself, man, I, I long for that. I would love to experience that. When I think about Advent, that's a, that's a great definition of Christmas. Him coming. God the Father who interrupts our routine, invades our space to remind his kids he sees them, he loves them, they are not forgotten. This is the season the church calendar calls, as James talked about, Advent. It means coming. You know, you look at every other religion, and it is about a coming, but it's not about God coming to us. It's about us coming to God. It's about us having our best behavior, our best sacrifice, our best offering. We come to God, and we hope that maybe he'll listen to us. Maybe he'll hear us. Maybe he'll notice us. But it's about our coming. It's not about his coming down to us. If you look out throughout all of history, if you want to look at any other religion, it is not about the God of heaven coming to humanity. It's about humanity trying to get God's attention. That is one of the key differences with Christianity and every other religion. And as we're going to see in the life of this one couple today, God comes running to them to interrupt their routine, to invade their space, and to remind this couple that he sees them, that he loves them, that he hasn't forgotten them. And I hope that by the end of this message, you'll feel that there's a God in heaven that's going to interrupt your routine. He's going to invade your space, and he's going to help you feel that you are not forgotten, that you are loved, that you are seen. Let's pray. Dear Father, we do thank you for this morning. We do thank you for this church. We thank you that um, it is a church that sits as a lamppost uh, in the greater Charlotte area that points people to you. It is a light that I pray would draw all men to, you, to yourself. That it would be a, a group of people that really are authentic community, that are willing to share who they are to become more like who you are. And I pray, God, that you would continue to grow and develop the people that are here so that they might grow and develop those that are far from you. Thank you for what you've done and what you'll continue to do. Lord, we pray for the blessing upon the reading of your word today. I'm in Luke 1. If you're not there, go ahead and join me in Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at a few verses, starting in verse 5. Luke is an uh, interesting gospel in that he starts his gospel with two birth accounts, not just the birth of Jesus, but he's going to also talk about the birth of John the Baptist. Before he even talks about Jesus, um, he, he's, he's writing to a guy by the name of Theophilus, and we think that he probably stands for the Roman elite of the day that had penned Luke to go on a historical mission. He said, hey, listen, we want you to find out. We've been hearing these stories all the way in Rome from Jerusalem about this guy named Jesus and this whole new way that had been talked about, and we want to know what the real story is. Did the guy really rise from the dead? Is he, is he really who he said he was? I mean, how do we know this? So what Luke did was he went back and he interviewed people. He wrote this about 30 years after Jesus' death. And he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go, there's people still alive, and I want to find out, do their stories corroborate? I mean, there are people that were still living at the time, and, and he's doing what any good journalist would do. Does this stand, is, is there credibility to this story of a man, of a God becoming man and dying on the cross so that we could be close and connected with the God of the universe? Totally different from every other Roman deity. And so that's what Luke endeavors to do. And he starts off, he doesn't start off with Jesus, he starts off with this couple. 
In the days of Herod, I'm in verse 5, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous uh, before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Uh, right away, we see that the God of the universe is about to come to earth at a specific time. He sets it at the time of Herod. You can go back in the history books. There was a real king named Herod. Uh, he's a specific time to a specific place in Jerusalem at the temple, the temple that Herod built to a specific couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we find already, right in the beginning, that, that Luke sets the stage. This couple is considered blameless, but yet there's a problem. They're barren. And what I think he's, what, what Luke is doing right from the beginning is that we live in a fallen world, and as such, even our good and right dreams are subject to the fallen world. That just because we do all the right things doesn't mean we're going to experience all the right blessings. And that was a common belief of not only their day, but I think our day. That if we continue to do right, if we do everything right, we should get something from God. It's like this Christian karma that I think a lot of our churches fall into. Well, I did my devos, I went to church, I paid tithes, I, I, I paid my taxes, I broke for animals, unless they're cats. I mean, you know, you make all of these rules, sorry to cat lovers out there. You make all of these rules to, to somehow get yourself into a position where God would notice you. And what Luke is saying right from the beginning, uh, they, they are blameless in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now I want to differentiate that from what Paul talks about when righteousness. Paul talks about a righteousness after Christ. This is talking about a righteousness before Christ. The righteousness was that uh, according to everything external, which God ultimately looks at what? He looks at the heart, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament. So these people are not perfect, but according to the law, it looks as if they're doing everything right. He's a priest. She comes from a priestly line of Aaron. So this is like a star couple. And they've done as much as they can up until themselves. They've done what's right, but yet they are barren. And it's to remind us that our current circumstances aren't necessarily linked to our obedience to God. Your current circumstances, my current circumstances are not necessarily linked to your obedience to God. I say not necessarily because there are times where God disciplines us, where he wants to get our attention. And he takes something away, he gives us a sickness, he can do those things if he wants to. But then there's other instances where it seems like, man, there are people that live their life totally according to their standards, their rules, their desires, and they seem to get everything. And then there's people that seem to do all the right things, trust in Christ, follow him, do everything right, but yet they have the life of Job. Do you know people like that? There are people like that. And what, what Luke is saying is, in a fallen world, that's going to happen. That the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. That God, at times, blesses people that we don't get and doesn't seem to bless people that seems like they should get the blessing. And some of us are feeling that. That our life, we, we're trying to do what's right, but we feel barren. Maybe not that we don't have a child, but we feel like we're owed some, some blessings. And what, what, Paul, what Luke is saying here is that, listen, our current circumstances aren't necessarily linked to our obedience uh, to God. But God chooses to show up. First of all, he's going to show up in the midst of their routine. He's going to show up in the midst of their routine. Look at verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest, this is Zechariah, before God when his division was on duty. Now, this is a, this is a key. There were about 18,000 priests during the time of Jerusalem. So Zechariah had been one of 18,000. His division, they were divided up into 24 divisions. And generally what that meant was that his division got to serve twice a year. That was it. Now they probably had 750 priests 
in his division. And in order for him to get what was called like the star roll, you basically had to get a star roll. You had to ca you cast lots and determine which of those 750 priests would then get to do a priestly duty. Now, he wouldn't get the high priest duty, which was going into the Holy of Holies to offer the sacrifices for the people of God. These were like secondary. This is like doing the announcements, all right? This is like secondary stuff or doing the offering. Uh, basically, what he was going to be able to do was maybe he was going to be able to offer the incense, which happened twice a day. And for a priest that was in this priestly line, he might get to do this once in a lifetime. Once in a lifetime. This was his shot, Okay. This is his shot. Don't mess it up. And it, it's going to fall to him. Now he was serving as priest before God according to the custom of the priesthood. He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. Now why were they burning incense? Well, because they were offering sacrifices. And generally, they burned incense because they give away. The, have you ever killed, have you been around a butcher? It doesn't smell that great. Every day they are killing animals as a sign that we are not perfect people, that we need forgiveness from God and that forgiveness takes blood and so animals were being killed to point us towards a better sacrifice one day that would be in the person of Jesus incense was offered afterwards to get away the smell it was basically potpourri that's what that's what Zechariah is doing now while the incense is being offered the people are outside the temple and during that time they're praying their prayers so sacrifices like bulls and cattle all of that uh, the, the cows that were being offered, the lambs, those were the sacrifices for sins, but the incense was being offered. When it was being offered, they were just praying their requests because we all have longings. We all have desires. And so when the priest would offer up those incense, when he would offer up the burning of the incense, that was kind of the signal to the people that were out in the outer courts, all these people that were in the temple at church, they would be praying for God to answer the desires of their heart. It's in this moment that something happens. It goes on to say in verse 10, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside the, at the hour of the incense, and they were appear, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense, which would probably freak him out. That's not in the text. Because no one's supposed to be in there. It's supposed to be him offering these, and he's not in the Holy of Holies, he's outside of the Holy of Holies, but it's supposed to be him by himself offering the incense, his one shot to do it right, his chance of a lifetime will probably never get it again, and there's a dude right there. Now, at that point, it's going to freak. It's a point of the horror movie where the camera pans, and there's like, you know, that doll that's in the corner that freaks you out. That's kind of what you get here. He's not expecting this. In every instance, whenever there's an angel that has been, that, that appears in the Bible, there's always something that follows after the angel appears. What does the angel say always? Fear not. You're freaking out right now. It's okay. I'm for you. I'm not against you. And the same thing happens here. Zechariah was troubled in the Greek, freak out, when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. When you look through scripture, what's interesting is you find God often interrupting our patterns. He interrupts our routines. He shows up unexpectedly in the midst of doing what we normally do. He shows up to Moses when he's just shepherding the sheep. He's shepherding the sheep and he shows up as a burning bush. He appears to Gideon when he's threshing out the wheat in the wine press. He shows up to the early disciples. Jesus walks, he goes to the fishermen while they're fishing. God often interrupts our routines. While we're doing what we're doing, the God of the universe comes down, enter into that time and space. While Zechariah is doing what he would 
he would, the routine of being a priest, that's when God chooses to show up unexpectedly. And can I say that's probably when God's going to show up in your life. When you're in a routine, you're not expecting it, and the God of the universe is going to knock on your heart. Does anybody know the name Joshua Bell? You probably don't know him unless you're a, maybe you're, if you're a cellist, like we had Ava playing the cello for us today. That was beautiful, by the way. Um, that was great. You might know Joshua Bell. Joshua Bell is a famous violinist. People would pay hundreds of dollars to see him play. He plays on a, that violin he has is a Stradivarius. It's only worth $3.5 million. And Joshua Bell was playing at a, um, at a symphony a couple days. Uh, in 2007, he was playing. People were paying thousands of dollars. And then a couple days later, he decided to show up uh, at a subway uh, in Washington, D.C. And he uh, dressed in a baseball cap, and he started playing. And I think we've got a video that will just play in the background here. He's playing at L'Enfant Plaza in the subway on January 12, 2007. Now, the, video, um, the videotape is, is hidden, so nobody knows that there's a camera there. But this expert violinist playing on a $3.5 million Stradivarius violin, he used the same, he played the same tunes, he played with the same um, violin, with the same passion playing during rush hour traffic. Now during that time, 1,097 people passed by, only seven stopped to listen to him. Only seven. Do we have sound? Five minutes, only seven out of the thousand stopped to actually listen to him, and he got $32.17 for his playing, for a guy that anybody would have paid hundreds of dollars to see just three nights before. And people didn't see Joshua Bell because they weren't looking for him. You don't expect that on a subway as you're riding to work, in your routine. It is easy to miss the magnificent because we're so consumed with comparably what's insignificant. It's so easy to miss the magnificent when we're so consumed with comparably to that person playing, whatever's going on in life is pretty much insignificant to them. God's going to show up in your routine. And there are going to be moments where you're going to be tempted to chase the insignificant rather than focus on the magnificent. Focus on the word that he has for you. We serve a God, Christmas reminds us, we serve a God who interrupts time and space. And he still does it today. He still is going to do it for you. And, that, and that's going to happen in your routine. It's not just because you come to church. It's not just because you, um, you have a certain set of time where you're seeking and, and praying and, and, and reading the Bible. That's important. I'll come to that in just a second. But more than likely, God's going to knock on the door of your heart in the routine of your life. And will you stop when you hear that voice? This is what happens to Zechariah. Will you recognize the magnificent in the midst of the insignificant? This morning, uh, James uh, wanted me to talk about a, a pretty sensitive subject. I don't think I've ever talked about porn right before I preached, but I ended up talking about 
pornography uh, this morning. And the reason why I was talking about it is because we've helped create a documentary series on how porn affects the brain, the heart, and the world. And our whole goal in this is that to get this pornography documentary series in to public schools so that our kids would be able to become the first filter to decide and to realize that it's just not worth it. Not as porn right or wrong, but it's just not worth it. The whole reason why that has happened is because I was sitting in Highland Creek in, in, at a, in my screened-in porch. I was reading a book by the guy by the name of Philip Zimbardo, who's a Stanford professor uh, who was writing about the subject. And he was talking about how it doesn't matter if in, in sex education, whether it's comprehensive-based or whether it's abstinence-based, but nobody is talking to our kids about the side effects of pornography. And it was in that moment I, I, I felt, I heard, I don't know what you'd even say, but in the routine of me reading, just reading a book, I sense God say, do something about that. I was like, say what? Do something about that. And that, that burden eventually became a burning bush. Now, what experience did I have with making films? I've watched a lot. But I had never been an executive producer of anything. And that began a five-year journey towards figuring out what that meant. But that doesn't mean that it was all on me. In fact, I partnered up with it because I, I knew I wasn't smart enough, wasn't good enough, wasn't, wasn't great enough to be able to do that on my own. So we partnered with a group called Fight the New Drug, and we produced this three-part documentary series that now is in schools all around the world. That would not have happened if I hadn't stopped and listened. The God of the universe, Christmas should always remind us, is that we have a God of the universe that interrupts time and space. Do you know his voice? Do you listen? Do you hear? Now, how do I get to know his voice? Well, notice that Zechariah, he is doing his priestly service. He has been going to the temple um, whenever the temple was open. He was constantly, this is the one time, and it was later on in his life when he finally heard God move. When God showed up. And I say all that to say is that he had built routines and created space to actually hear and to listen to God. What about you? If your routine is constantly chasing after what's comparably insignificant to the God of the universe, have you created space for the magnificent to show up? Remember, um, our kids will always know... Um, and think about Jen when they come down from the stairs in the morning because of a certain chair. Because that's usually when they find Jen, is, is when they come downstairs, if they wake up early enough, they'll find Jen in a chair where she's got her Bible, she's got her journal, and that's where she meets with the magnificent. Brantley came down one day. I was taking care of the kids one weekend. Um, I don't know what Jen was thinking, but I had them all to myself. And don't worry, they, they were all alive by the end, which is a miracle for me. But I remember Brantley came down, and she took one look at the chair, and then she looked back at me, and she said, I miss mine. And Jen had just made a routine of meeting with the magnificent. Why? So that I can't, I can't know somebody's voice if I'm not listening to them, if I'm not hearing and reading and soaking in. What would God sound like? I get that from the Bible. I get that from prayer. I get that from journaling. I get from the tried and true spiritual disciplines that have been passed down throughout. That's why we're doing Advent. is because it's something that has been passed down for tradition because you never know when God's going to show up. But we have a God of the universe that wants to show up in time and space. Have you created space for him? 
And then when you create that space or when he interrupts your routine, it's like this isn't a stranger talking to me. This is somebody that's knocking on the door of my heart to go, it's time for me to go on that mission trip. It's time for me to talk to that neighbor. It's time for me to write that book. It's time for me to do whatever it might be. He's going to move in your life, and he's going to come in the routine of your life. Let's not be like the thousands of people that just walk by the magnificent without stopping to hear. Because we're so rushed, right? Um, Jesus modeled that. He made it a pattern. He created space that he would pull away for the mountain just to hear his father's voice. Christmas reminds us that we serve a God who interrupts our routine. Do we make it a routine to be ready for his interruption? Do we make it a routine to be ready for his interruption? Secondly, Advent also means that he invades our space. He invades our space. Look what happens. Uh, but the angel said to him, verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You should call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And he goes on to talk about what John must do and how he's going to live. And in verse, eight, verse 16 it says, And how he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And, and underline the word many. Not everyone will come, but many will come. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the people, for the Lord, a people uh, prepared. Um, Advent means that he invades our space. Invading space rarely feels comfortable. Zechariah wasn't comfortable when the, the angel was there. It didn't feel natural to have this extra person in the temple. Not only that, but he's prophesying about this, this son that's going to be born that's in the spirit of Elijah. Now, the, Elijah was not somebody that people listened to very often. He's talking to a people of God wanting to turn the people of God back to God, but they didn't really listen to him a ton. They wanted to follow their own way. John is going to be a guy that is going to come in and he is going to invade people's space and say, what you're doing needs to stop. You need to turn what you're doing disobediently. You need to repent. That's all repentance means. Repentance means I was walking one way and then I turn and start going a different way. That my heart and affection changes and so my behavior's got to follow. John sits at the crossroads of people's lives. He invades their space. And sometimes when you invade what I would call personal space, it's not comfortable. We lived in Thailand for a year, and the Thai people just didn't know what personal space meant. I don't know if that was not in their culture, but they didn't know that there's a circle around me, and you don't come in that circle. Like, if you come in that circle, it's, it's kind of fighting. It's, it, you're, you're invading my space here. But on the bus, they would just, they would just come down, and they would, it, was, it, it didn't serve anybody. Like, there wouldn't be a big deal for them just to come down, and you're just, you're just standing on a bus like this. The whole time. And they're even touching you. Are, you. are you feeling uncomfortable? Yeah, you are. You're a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. John would be. John would probably punch me if I like got right here. Or if I just started talking to him in the sermon like this. And I said, hey, we're going to preach the rest of the sermon like this. It's going to be awkward. Because I'm getting in his personal space. God invades our space and it's not always comfortable. Like when you get on an elevator next time, just turn to the person and go, hey, What's the most embarrassing moment that you've ever felt? And you're going to see that I've just, I've just infringed on their personal space. We're going to see that the God of the universe, when he invades our space, it's not to make us comfortable. It's to make us uncomfortable. It's to call us out on something that we're doing, that our heart is chasing something that isn't going to satisfy us. 
that we're going after stuff that isn't going to matter, that's insignificant, or he's going to call us out of sin that we're in because he wants to, he wants to help us grow. I mean, right before I, was in, right before I came to this service, I was in the bathroom. This is getting real personal. And James was at a, a stall. And there was plenty of other options that were there for me to take. But instead, I was like, this will be good for my sermon. So I went to the one right next to him. And immediately he starts laughing. Why? Because there was a man code that I violated, right? All men know this code. I don't know if that happens in the girls' bathroom where you kind of, you know, because there's all doors and there's all this, like, this lockbox for women in their bathrooms. But for guys, especially if we don't have a divider, it can get really awkward if you're walking in and then you take the stall right next to it. If there's, a, if there's an extra urinal, you take that one. Everybody knows it. But the fact that James started laughing just reveals my point. You don't do that to another dude. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. God invades our space. Why? Because he wants to remind us of what we're missing. That's what John's going to do. He goes on. He's going to be filled with the Spirit. He's going to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the Spirit and the power of Elijah. He's going to do it like a prophet. And most prophets were not received well in the Old Testament. He's going to invade people's space. And he's going to force them to make a decision. Will you follow him? Will you follow God or will you follow self? I like what, um, well, Christ's point, what your mission statement. I don't know who came up with this, but I really like it. At Christ's point, we believe each and every person longs to experience life. The life we long for can only be experienced in a relationship with Jesus. So it's our desire to point people to Jesus. Because life is found in him. Jesus must increase. We must decrease. Guess who said Jesus must increase? And we must decrease. That candle is glowing like crazy, huh? Is that the time of my message? Like, <laughs> like I'm done now? She blew it out. Is that the subtle signal now that we're given? I like that. That's sweet. I always preach too long, so that would help. So who was it that said, I'm, I must decrease, he must increase? It was John the Baptist. John the Baptist. It was, it was the one that is being prophesied here. And so what he was, was to do that, though, for him, he's always pointing people to Jesus, and that wasn't always comfortable. It always wasn't comfortable for John. He, he ate weird things, he dressed weirdly, and God even said from the beginning, he is going to be an uncomfortable dude. But I need that because I want people to see that it's not about him, it's about Jesus. Jim Elliott was a famous missionary uh, back, in, I believe, in the 50s or 60s. And I love this quote by Jim Elliott. He went down to the Aka Indians down in the Amazon. And this was written in his journal. He said, Father, make me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. Jim went on to be that fork in the road for some Aka Indians, so much so that they made a decision. He and his five buddies suffered terribly at the hands of the, the very people they're trying to tell about Jesus, to point them towards Jesus, and they died. His prayer was answered. He was a signpost. He was a fork in the road in people's lives, and they made a decision. They said, I want nothing to do with Christ. And so they killed Jim. They did the same thing to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a man that would come into people's lives, and you had to go to the right or to the left. 
You did either follow Jesus or not. And generally, when people become a, a fork in the road of other people, if you force people to make a decision, it's not a comfortable place. God invades our space, and I think he's asking us to do the same. Gabriel prophesied that John would be a crisis man. And I wonder, are we mileposts in people's lives this Christmas, or are we forks in the road? Are we mileposts in people's lives? See, all too often, I'm just a milepost, man. I just want to get along. I just want people to get along with me. I don't, I, I don't want to cause ripples. And if we're going to make an impact, if Christ Point is really going to be Christ Point and point, pointing people to Christ, we need to be a people that are forks in the road. That aren't just mileposts, that people are just zoomed by us, would never know that our whole mission in life is to point people to Jesus. And it's going to cause us to move into uncomfortable spaces. Why? We invade the space not to be irritating, not to be, not to be um, unruly, not to be disrespectful, but to remind them that they're greatly loved. You know, the only other, one of the other, other times that we see Gabriel uh, showing up in Scripture is in Daniel. Daniel chapter 10, verse 20 through 23. I think I've got it right there. And he goes on, he's talking to Daniel, and he is, he's showing up, same thing. He shows up, tells Daniel, don't fear, because he must be an imposing dude. He must be a big guy. I don't know what, what he looks like, but he causes fear in people's lives. And he goes on to say, oh, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. You are greatly loved. Ultimately, why do we invade people's space? It's to tell them they're greatly loved. And what they're chasing isn't going to satisfy them. And what they're doing isn't going to fulfill them. But there is a God in heaven that's coming after them. What does invading space look like? Well, it already looks like two things that have happened here this morning that I've seen. Anne-Marie and Ava, where are they? Where's Ava? There she is. Uh, this morning, right after we were done, they were, they were inviting the other youth to write letters to these. Uh, I guess they got a friend that's at Paris Island in boot camp. And so they're writing, what, 500 letters? 500 letters to these other officers that they don't know. They've never met. And they're writing because they've said, listen... We, we know it can't, be, it, can't be, it can't be fun to be in boot camp for Christmas when you're not around family. So they're invading the space of that boot camp. To, why? To tell them that they're greatly loved. To tell them that they're greatly loved. So I knew another guy. I found out he'd been here at church for a year. And I was like, why did you decide to come here? And he said, it was real simple. We turned around to 15 other churches and everything felt like kind of like a marketing pitch. But I got here to this church, to Christ Point, And after one service... My wife was talking with some of the other women and was just burying her heart and her soul. And I look and I see these women just around her, praying for her. And it was like this authentic community. That's what it was about. Now what was happening, those women could have easily said, hey, it's time for lunch. But they saw somebody new. They invaded that person's space. Why? To tell them that they're greatly loved. How can we share the love that's here with that person? Now Christ Point will grow if you invade people's space, not in a weird way, like not what I was doing with John, but you're just asking them questions, finding out what they need, what are their heart's desires, and then meeting that. It's things like crossing the street with cookies at Christmas. But don't just cross with cookies. Give them a verse. Give them something that points them back to Jesus. Asking a probing question. Offering to pray for the waiter at the table right before you get ready to eat your meal. Hey, what do you need? 
That's invading somebody's space with grace. When I look at the, your website and I see how many times you as a church do this, it just warms my heart. That you go to Honduras and you invade that orphanage and you build walls and you paint and you play games. I think we got a picture. There we go. That's invading space. You're taking the dreams of debilitating kids that are suffering from great illnesses and you're giving them a dream they never would have. That's invading space. When you go to places like that are uncharted, that no Christian would ever go, to dangerous lands in the Middle East, and you bring grace. I look at everything that you saw. I'm looking at it, it's like, we're, we're not a huge church right here. But you guys are invading space all over the world. From here in Concord and, and, and um, in North Charlotte, all the way around the globe. Keep doing it. Make that a part uh, of your DNA. Christmas reminds us that God interrupts our routine. He invades our space. You know what December 1 is? I didn't know this until today. December 1 is also known as Rosa Parks Day. Rosa Parks Day. She invaded space. She sat down for justice on a bus because she said, I'm not going to stand for injustice anymore. Sometimes it looks like standing up for the marginalized for the hurting, for the downtrodden. It's for invading our cultural and societal space that is doing wrong to those that are least deserving. God invades our space. But lastly, why does he do it? He lets us know that he sees us, he loves us, and he hasn't forgotten us. Look at Luke 18, Luke 1, 18. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? How shall, I get, how, how shall this happen? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. He's a smart guy. He's had some house training. He knows not to call his wife old. She's advanced in years. That was very wise dude. She's not even around, and he does it. And the angel, angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Have you noticed how often God shows up to the I'm, not, I'm nots in Scripture? The I'm nots in Scripture. Whether he appears in a, as a burning bush or as an angel or as a vision or as a dream, he tells them what he's going to do, and then we often respond with, well, I, I'm not eloquent of speech. Well, well, I'm not strong. Well, I'm not this. And we just fill in the blank. Here's another one. Well, I, haven't you seen I'm old? It's amazing how... Zechariah, who is blameless, righteous, seeking the God of the universe, still sees his limitations far more than God's limitlessness. He's got an angel standing beside him, and he's still going, I don't know that I, I don't know if this can work. It doesn't matter, it just goes to show you, it doesn't matter how many miracles God does, it won't always convince us that God's going to use us. You and I can sit back and talk about all the miracles that God has done. We can recite the Red Sea. We can talk about uh, the feeding of the 5,000, the healing of the blind men. We can talk about Jesus being raised from the dead. It does not matter if at the end of the day, you still and I still hold on to our shame and doubt far more than we hold on to God. And that's exactly what Zechariah is holding on to. He's like, but, but have you seen me? Do you know my situation? 
Do you know my hardship? But I'm old. I'm not young. Gideon says, I'm not strong. I'm the weakest in my clan. It's an irony of Scripture how often we remind God of what he already knows. I wonder how many times I would be struck mute by God every time I deny what God has said about me. How many times would you be struck mute, just like what, what Zechariah was, when you just don't act on what God's already told you? One of the biggest ones that I don't act on or that I don't believe or that I hold on to is shame. It's exactly what Zechariah and what Elizabeth are feeling. In fact, if you look in verse 24, after these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me. Notice in that word for looked is gazed intently. He saw me to take away my reproach among people. So even though they're blameless, even though they're righteous, here's what they feel in their hearts. They're not enough. They don't have what it takes. It doesn't matter how many times God shows up in their life in this point in time, there is a sense throughout their whole life that they felt a sense of, I'm just not enough. I was listening to Brene Brown the other day. He has a TED Talk on vulnerability and shame. She's been viewed over 44 million times. If you haven't seen it, you can go to TED Talk and watch. And she talked about uh, a topic that most of us don't want to talk about. It's this idea of shame. Shame is different from guilt. Guilt says it's regret over bad behavior. It's what's going to happen at the end of Christmas, and you get on the scale, and you go, man, I really should not have eaten that much food. I've gained 10 pounds. I regret that behavior. Shame says you get on the scale, and you see 10 pounds, and you go, I suck as a human being. I'm a failure. I'm a loser. And you start making statements about who you are and your identity, regardless of what God has said about you. And so even though Elizabeth is one that has had great blessings throughout her life, she still feels this sense of reproach, of shame, because she hasn't had a child. Because in that day, that was a sign of blessing. Shame is feeling about, bad about who I, who I am, and usually it's for one of three reasons. What's been done to me, what I've experienced as a kid, some abuse or something that's taken place, what I've done to myself or others, the mistakes I've made, or what I haven't done or accomplished, you feel shame. I'm just not enough. Young um, scholars call shame the swampland of the soul. The swampland of the soul. When my teenagers uh, fail, I don't see it as an opportunity for them to see their sin and reconnect with God. Shame says I'm the worst parent. I'm the worst parent. When I don't make the team or get first chair or get turned down by the girl or the guy, it's not, hey, there's, there's more opportunity or that just not, must not be God's will. It's, I'm a loser. That's shame. And the reason why Advent is here, the reason why we have a, a Savior who has come is to take away our reproach. It's to know that you are greatly loved, that there's nothing that can keep you from the love of God. That it doesn't matter what you've been through, what you've done, who you are. That the gospel is about fresh starts, new beginnings. You can start new. That you don't have to live in your shame. But all too often, uh, we feel that, don't we? We feel like I'm not enough. Brene says that all shame needs to grow is a petri dish filled with secrecy, silence, and judgment. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. If people really knew who I am and what I struggle with, 
they wouldn't want to be around. She said the reason, the difference between people that have dealt with shame and the people that haven't dealt with shame is the people that, that have dealt with shame feel worthy of being loved. She's like, that's it. They feel worthy of being loved. And that's Christmas. Christmas, the God of the universe is going, you are so worthy to be loved, I'm sending my son to you. I'm coming to you to deal with the shame and the hurt and the pain that we feel like, that we feel often in our hearts. You know, recently we opened up our house to an Airbnb. You guys ever done that? You got some Airbnbers out here that opened up your house via Airbnb. It was unusual clientele. It was flying squirrels. And um, basically what we were saying to the flying squirrel community is that any rodent can bed down Desiring a, uh, desiring a dry roof could bed down in our attic, in our insulation, and make babies. That's basically the advertisement that we put out. And it went out onto Air Squirrel Yelp, and many others came to stay. And we'd get woken up by all these unwanted guests. Usually at about 2 or 3 in the morning, they'd be scurrying about, having a good time, having a great party. Um, and it took a lot to get rid of them. It took a year, basically, before we finally got rid of them all. You know what I've discovered is my attic is a lot like my brain. I've opened it up to a lot of unwanted guests scurrying about my brain. Just like what Elizabeth was doing. I wonder how many years that she and, and her husband prayed and prayed and prayed, and yet, because they didn't have a child, they felt reproach. They felt shame. Is there something in your life where it's like, man, I, I deal with these unwanted guests all the time of just m me, myself, reminding myself of what I don't have. That I don't have the business I want, that I don't have the child that I want, that I don't have the teenager that I want, that I don't have the job that I want, that I don't have the, the position that I want, that, and because of that, I'm not worthy. And those unwanted guests usually show up about 2 a.m., 3 a.m., and they rattle around in your head I heard one author call this renegade self-reflection. You ever done that? Where you're just constantly, man, I do it all the time. Shame says I'm not enough. It's the exact opposite of taking every thought captive to obey Christ. I like that passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul says to take every thought of, uh, captive to obey Christ. Did you know that you can push your thoughts around rather than have your thoughts push you around? I spend way too much of my head allowing my thoughts pushing me around. I'm like that dog in Pixar's Up, where it's like, squirrel, squirrel, oh, I'm not enough, or I didn't do that, or if I had only done this, or if, and I'm just chasing one thought to the next. And this passage reminds us that that reproach is taken away, not just because she was having a baby, but because a baby is born that says to us that there is no shame, there is no guilt, that the cross reminds us that God came to say, you are worthy of being loved. Not because of what we've done or who we are, but because of the son that came. I heard one person say that when I grow up, I want to think about myself in ways that make me miserable. Nobody wants that. And Christmas should remind us that wherever we are in life, that you are seen, that you are loved, and that you are not forgotten. The God of the universe interrupted time 
and space to let you know that God is enough, even when you don't feel like you're enough. To remind you, don't doubt in the dark what God has revealed in the light. What's he called you to do? What has he interrupted your routine to go after? Don't doubt in the dark what he has revealed uh, in the light. Advent really is about him coming away, coming here to take away that shame for us. And so I hope that as we look at this story, as we think about this story, that there is a, there is a, there is a sense that, um, that we are reminded. In fact, barren women have this, this, this um, theme throughout Scripture where God comes to barren women and he takes away that shame and that reproach, I think is a signpost to kind of point us to this day when there was one child that would come that would take away any of those feelings of shame and guilt and pain. And the only way that we do that is be pointed back to Jesus, which is exactly what's in your name. That we're all waiting for him to come again, not to restore, to, to restore who we are. He's already done that. He's already given that and restored our hearts if we allow him to. But there's going to come a day where he's going to take away all the pain, all the sorrow, all the hurt. And that day is not today, but it will come soon.